1: Hello everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amari Averett-Phillips, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Hannah Noel Haynes about her new book, Deflective Whiteness, Co-opting Black and Latinx Identity Politics. Dr. Haynes, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Amari. I'm really excited to be here today.
1: Thank you. We're excited to have you as well. And so I wonder if you could just begin the interview by telling us just a bit about yourself.
0: Yeah, I was born in rural Massachusetts. Um, and I went to school at Williams College, where I was really lucky to have some great mentors, including Dr. Maria Elena Cepeda, who I still work with to this day. Um, and then I went to the University of Michigan Ann Arbor for American Culture. Um, and I got my master's and PhD there. And I worked with, among other people, Dr. Maria Cotera, um, Sherry Randolph. Evelyn Alstantani, um, Amy Sari Carroll, Anthony Mora, and more, um, Larry LaFontaine Stokes. But I could go on and on, but they all very influenced me in, in my trajectory.
1: Awesome. Awesome. So about this book, how, how did you come to this project?
0: I think that's a really great question. And it's something that if you were to ask me when I was a graduate student, If I were to write this book, I would say, I'm not going to write a book in critical whiteness studies, Um, but I did. And so I wrote my dissertation on historically white media, looking at representations of um, largely Guatemalan Mayan um, immigrants in U.S. English language media, though not exclusively, and after I kind of sat away from my dissertation for a little while, I realized that one of the things that I was doing was almost burying the lead, so to speak, that I was talking about the ways in which historically minoritized groups were misrepresented in media, in public discourse, in rhetoric. But I didn't talk about why who was doing the misrepresenting? What, was the, what type of ideological work was this misrepresenting doing on kind of a national global scale in shaping our ideologies around one another? So once I did that, when, once I kind of realized that, yes, I could talk about misrepresentation um, until I'm blue in the face, but I really wanted to highlight what are the larger power dynamics happening in this misrepresentation? Um, to what end? And what agency are people having to fight against these misrepresentations? Which is something that I always did in my work, but I also wanted to make the, um, the work of whiteness more visible and center to see how whiteness as a racial and social project operates because it often um, is invisible, invisibilizes itself or works through um, invisibility or not being seen. So I wanted to make it very clear that's what I was studying.
1: Wonderful. And so just the organization of this book, so it's divided into two parts. Um, Could you explain to us the focus and the organization of each part?
0: Yeah, I really owe that um, to scholars like Stuart Hall. (laughs) Um, So Stuart Hall talks a little bit about inferential racism. So inferential racism and overt racism these are the two sections of my book. Overt racism is obvious racism. These oftentimes today, though, um, people like Aurora Bonilla-Silva, um, Stuart Hall, others um, say racism is often today uh, less overt, right? It's covert, Inferential racism is that type of covert racism. Oftentimes, it is actually some of the most harmful, or Eduardo Bonilla Silva argues this in the chapter in Racism Without Racists, um, that it's actually the most, um, that it can be the most um, toxic or, you know, hard racism to not only pinpoint, but um, to also challenge because it works under, as I argue, sometimes like an alibi of injury or it works under like a facade or a smoke screen um, where you don't necessarily focus on what what's actually happening. You're kind of thinking on more um, overt or covert types of racism. So, for example, um, and I'll, I'll mention this more a little bit later when we get into the nitty gritty of the book. But uh, in terms of inferential racism, in those chapters, I talk about the ways in which the activism of um, a largely undocumented uh, Latinx workforce um, is co-opted by um, the marketing and brand agenda that uses this activism to sell a progressive uh, clothing brand. So that's an example.
1: And you write really very early in the introduction that this book is a study in white deflection. Um, could you just define what white deflection is for us?
0: Yeah, white deflection. Um, my book is a, um, a work in critical racial rhetorics. And white deflection is a type of discourse that operates kind of in a two-stepped process. It um, involves claims of white victimhood, followed by the appropriation of social justice um, discourse by uh, minoritized individuals.
1: And so, in chapter one, actually, uh, sort of built upon that, right? You're, you're looking at uh, the online reactionary rhetoric that pirates uh, social movement frames, specifically those of Black Lives Matter. Uh, could you just take us through the methods that you use in that chapter, and the organization um, and the organization, sorry, that you've researched in order to understand uh, how this occurs through social media?
0: My first chapter is entitled "Of Memes, Masculinity of Memes." Militancy and Masculinity, White Rhetoric and Racial Fabrication in Online Discourse. And this chapter looks at a few different case studies. It's a mixed method chapter. I use both content analysis and critical discourse to talk about white deflection in online mediated environments. So for example, in one of the case studies that I look at that I use um, content analysis is I look at a conservative media outlet Um, that I call blue lives. Um, if you want to know more about it, you can look at my book, but what I do is I look at their Twitter page and I follow their Twitter page over a period of time. And I, um, Copied all of their different tweets, and I was really interested in what are um, what are the types of rhetorical framing that we see um, again and again in this media coverage. How are individuals being represented? How are social media movements being co-opted and misrepresented? And I say that because in a part of their. Um, And a part of their movement history, they're talking about themselves as a reactionary movement to Black Lives Matter, a reactionary movement to the perceived misrepresentation um, of um, law enforcement, of corrections officers, of individuals with um, really with control over hard power and institutions. So I was interested in doing the content analysis to really uncover how do we understand framing mechanisms within this discourse? Because I was interested in, if I am, let's just say, who is the average consumer of this media? What types of messages are they being um, fed subliminally, subliminally or overtly through this, this rhetoric? And um, so my findings kind of, I, I came up with a frame of what I call a, a militant victimhood, which is an example of white deflection. So the Black Lives Matter social movement was completely misrepresented, but it was used in a way to show the real victims in the idea of this Blue Lies um, media outlet was not, you know, um, individuals who are the victims of heinous acts of, of violence. But they're actually um, law enforcement officers who have, you know, uh, law enforcement, you know, questionable law enforcement practices um, held into account. So there's one um, post that appeared multiple times throughout um, the month of coverage that involved this absolutely horrible, horrific image of, of racial violence uh, against a black man. And in every single instance, the culpability or the... Um, criminality was not put on police officers who literally led a person behind, who was um, shackled behind a horse. It was on the police officers, people for critiquing police officers, what they called an approved tactic. That's just one analogy. But the overwhelming amount of framing, the images, the, um, the information that Audiences would be like decoding, right? Um, if for, if it was the intended kind of image from the media outlet, overwhelmingly portrayed black men as violent, even black criminal, um, pro- or even people who were in law enforcement. The ways in which images um, accompanied rhetoric um, in the different social media posts, even if the black man wasn't was a police officer, that wasn't noted it was, there was rhetoric used that kind of um, associated black men with criminality. And, and it was very, very prevalent throughout the entire coverage. Um, so that, in addition to the overwhelming um, ways in which we were constantly reminded through that media outlet that, um, you know, cops, our are, are victims, whether they be through uh, various segments, like a half of the segments almost mentioned somehow or reminded people somehow that cops were, were victims, whether it be a political correctness or um, being investigated for, for doing some wrongdoing um, against an individual. Uh, it just seemed that there was almost this oxymoron, <laughs> oxymoronic representation where um the pers- the people in tr- control of hard power in the united states were seen as victims but at the same time militant And this militancy w- um, against the citizenry against historically marginalized largely um black individuals black men particularly was justified through claims of victimhood And to support that, people were pointing to the Black Lives Matter social movement. Now, this is just one example that I talk about in the chapter. I talk about others. But um, I really wanted to take some time and do content analysis to show numerically, right, Um, something that's ostensibly not subjective. We know everything can be subjective in academia. But um, to really show the power the aggregate power of these images, what uh, is it, Stuart Hall calls a, is it, yeah, Stuart Hall, racialized regime of representation. What is the power of the racialized regime of representation of whiteness in this coverage? Because whiteness isn't mentioned, right? It's not mentioned. What's mentioned is black criminality, but that's not what's happening. Right. That's the that's the smokescreen. So I really am interested in, the, in that white deflection in that smokescreen. What is the racial project of whiteness? How is it operating in conjunction with hard power and how is it operating in this media outlet that had millions of subscribers across a variety of different social media? Right. So um, I'm really interested in the ways that people engage online in everyday forms of communication. And a lot of the media I look at, people might think of, oh, that's, you know, that's social media, that's trash media, that's how people communicate online, or that's trash music. But it's really popular, everything I look at. It's popular with particular demographics, and it's popular with demographics that are easy for some maybe to dismiss, but nevertheless have large amounts of social power. Yeah. Absolutely,
1: yes. Uh, in, in chapter two, you actually you continue this, right? You, you sort of view the role that white women play in this, um, and the way that they sort of play in this masculine and white rhetoric behind def- the deflection. Um, and so this chapter was really particularly interesting to me. I wonder if you could just take us through and how, how, how you found that sort of white women participate in white deflection.
0: I'm so happy you like this chapter because you know, I wrote it. I I submitted my name script without this chapter. And um, one of my, my reviewer number two, both reviewers are fantastic. But reviewer number two said, I really want you to do more of masculinity. I want you to talk about masculinity. And I'm, the assumption I had in reading the comments was that the discussion was masculinity in connection to cis male bodies. But to me, that's not the more interesting story. It's the ways in which masculine rhetoric is embodied um, by women, embodied by also, um, and I can talk about this later, which is my next project, by historically minoritized communities. Like what I, what, what is it? Christina Beltran? Christina Beltran? Mm -hmm. Terms multicultural whiteness. Um, Um, So... How I came to this chapter was kind of reading that reviewer's comment and saying, I agree with you, but I want to take it in a different direction. (laughs) And my book book publishers let me do that. And the reader said that he thought that I I did a much better job answering it than what he thought. So I, not not to talk my own horn, but but I was really kind of happy that they both accepted what was kind of a, a risky thing for me to do. So I'm really interested in in why I wrote this chapter. So one of the case studies I look at this chapter is Ashley Babbitt. And this woman, this white woman, um, had a strong social media presence. And it was posting very conservative rhetoric and was involved in the uprising um, and the attempted hostile government takeover of January 6th and died during that takeover. And I was really interested in the ways in which rhetoric leading up to the hostile takeover is militaristic, right? She has a a military career, um, and, you know, is very angry and has, um, very masculine rhetoric, right? Very militaristic, very, uh, calling out, um, certain minoritized communities, um, really having these very, um, Really embodying all of the frames I uncover in the first chapter under militant victimhood, but then also the ways in which in media then took on this rhetoric, but did something different and used femininity, right, and, and her her status as cis white woman um, to to use her as a martyr, right. So I'm I was really interested, and I talk about a, a few more examples here, but the ways in which um, hegemonic masculinity and femininity work together in this case study. Um, and the ways that, um, hegemonic femininity, uh, is important in understanding rhetorical whiteness. And, and if you think about it, it's no surprise. I mean, um, Going back to Birth of a Nation, narratives of white slavery, right? White women have always been, um, in in white supremacist kind of rhetoric, this um, body of which we need to save. But what I'm kind of arguing in this chapter is that it's, it's changing, and it's not just this idea of a passive subject. It's now this militarized subject. It's a militarized subject who nevertheless can kind of switch to um, an individual whose femininity means that she needs to be taken care of um, by the movement, um, this martyrdom. But yeah, so in that chapter, I look at the ways in which um, rhetorical masculinity, hegemonic masculinity um, looks outside of the cis white male um, frame, which I think a lot of people tend to associate with conservative white race discourse.
1: Yeah, and that and that's actually what was so interesting to me was that sort of looking at it from a different vantage point, I think that we're all very aware of the way in which white women are have been used to uh, as the uh, embodiment of what sort of needs to be done in terms of racial ideas within America. And so the way in which the white women sort of take this up and then sort of move forward with it and the way that it's able to change, right? That as you're talking about with this individual that who is sort of what we would consider a bit more masculine in a number of the ways in which he sort of does this traditionally at least um, still is something that can be taken up in in this way. And so that was... Really, to me, I think one of the things that was most eye opening about that chapter and why I just loved it so much. I think it opens up so many different doors and questions around that. Um, speaking of like opening up doors and questions, chapter three, you look at music, uh, particularly country music and its sort of subgenres. Um, and so, uh, and one of the things I think that you bring up that's so fascinating about this, and I wonder if you could talk about this a little bit more, um, you talk about how we might be wrong in believing that country music is sort of a white music genre. Um, and I'm wondering how this. Relates, uh, or if you could t- talk, to, talk to us about the way that this relates to the themes and arguments uh, that are sort of contained in the larger portions of this book.
0: Yeah, so I purposely put this chapter in the middle because I think it really does a good job at bridging the overt and the covert or inferential types of um, white deflection that I'm talking about through the book. So specifically, I look at um, bro country and country rap. These two often dismissed. Um, not many people write about them. <laughs> um, I, I wasn't able to find very many um, Academics who wrote about, yes, country rap, but none, none about bro country. And I first of all, that's really interesting to me because this is one of the highest grossing um, types of music. There are a couple of young scholars that I've met since I wrote this chapter um, and, and we're working together now. But um, it's really an emerging field. So I think that um, oftentimes and, and there's scholars who've written about why country music sounds white. Right? Country music makes a lot of effort. And I'm talking about contemporary, you know, kind of poppy country music, makes an effort to sound white. It's not just the twang in country music. And other scholars have written about it, but it's also in the callbacks, right? Other genres use callbacks as well. But the callbacks are to Joe Dithy, the callbacks are to Merle Haggard, the callbacks are to, you know, these these white artists, these um, white artists who some of them have been noted for their racism in the past, but not all, not all. Um, But it's important not to forget that country music is always already amalgamated, that there are black roots of country music. There's indigenous roots of country music. And um, there's kind of this tendency with, when it came to Lil Nas X, and I begin talking about the Lil Nas X controversy around Old Town Road and how um, Old Town Road was taken off some of the Billboard country charts. And You know, people were like, oh, this is this is like a moment in which we're um, debating what is or what is not country. And some there are even white country stars who then discussed this within their lyrics and in subsequent subsequent songs. But when you actually look, um, individuals like Cowboy Troy had had um, country rap songs, way before. <laughs> I mean, I don't even know if, um, a little Lil Nas X would have been alive, but I'm talking like the early 2000s, 2004, 2005. Um, so it's really not something new. Black country music is not something new. The, um, Petrella and Bonner, Aaron Neville, um, uh, Oh, what's her name? Um, I'm oh, sorry, this is it's escaping me. Um, Tina Turner, right? <laughs> Tina Turner. Like I can go on and on about all of these amazing artists, and if you listen to country music. There's the history there, but again, it's the processes of what Drew Lopenzina calls unwitnessing. Um, now he uses unwitnessing in the context of um, indigenous histories how, and, and, and how they're for, er, erased from or unwitnessed from colonial archives and nevertheless, they're there. But we're unwitnessing these histories, these artists, these black artists who are instrumental and important in the foundation of country music. It's there. It's there when you're listening to it. But it's you very rarely hear Erin Neville in a callback on a bro country song. I don't think I ever have. I know I've heard Merle Haggard quite a bit. Um, but yeah, so um, how does this relate to my argument of the book? I, I was rambling a bit. I think that Within these songs, really what I focus is on a long debate that's been within cultural studies, which is the name country itself, right? And... I list, like, if you listen to a lot of mu- country music today, they're obsessed with defining country. What is country? It's a racialized geography. It's a place. It's um, a place unbound by geography. It's the rural. Um, Brentley Gilbert says country is countrywide. Like, what does this mean? So I was really interested in how rhetorically country is being used as a white Christian geography. And how are people engaging with that concept, with that metaphor today in an active rhetoric that's happening all around us, that's being defined in these songs, songs that, you know, uh, romanticize at times black women, romanticize uh, Latin America, um, but also romanticize white America, romanticize rural America, sometimes by producers who maybe didn't grow up working poor, but will sing lyrics that kind of bemoan a working poor experience. Yeah. It's so interesting
1: because it's, it gets so much away from like, I was a huge Grant Parsons fan sort of growing up and the way they talked about how all of these uh, different forms of music, different genres of music had sort of, uh, quintessential sort of Black American roots, what you sort of called cosmic American music, right? And so it's getting away from that and sort of foreclosing some of these ideas. And so I, I wonder, just as a follow-up to that, what what does this do if music is defined in this sort of way, right? What does that actually do for this process and for the project of whiteness to sort of foreclose some of these avenues and understandings of how other groups uh, enjoy or have been a part of this music?
0: yeah. I think that that's a really great question. And I think that um, what I wanna say is music shapes racial ideologies, right? But music also, I'm thinking of the work of Josh Kuhn here around audiotopia. It's a different audiotopia, but it's an audiotopia of make America great again. Um, from that vantage point. And I think that Lil Nas X disrupted that in a few different ways. He disrupted it through TikTok, right? Completely going around the historically white national establishment, but then also through its blackness, his queerness, um, really kind of challenging the paradigm and other white country music stars are doing that too. I'm thinking about like, um, There's a song, um, Girl in a Country Song by Maddie and Tay, um, which try to begin to kind of challenge that, I would say. Um, But it gives a, hmm, it allows for a nostalgia, for listening, for an imagining that is deliberately ahistorical, that reinforces white hegemony and completely disregards the actual foundations of our musical life that we enjoy, right? You wouldn't have country music if we didn't have um, black cultural roots in, in, in the music. It's there, <laughs> um, but we're, we're constantly, if we constantly define you know, and gatekeep these spaces, it doesn't mean they're not there, but it just means that we're trying or at least these artists are trying really hard to define, you know, this is a space for us. This is our space. Um, That being said, it's not to say that other people um, might listen to it differently. We we have all different listening styles. And that's one of the things that I think makes popular music so interesting to study is that it's easy to passively listen to. It's very easy to listen to a bop um, in the background and not – carefully listen to the lyrics. And that is, that can be really dangerous. It can either, you can have a like, um, you can either, you know, take something completely different away from a song or it can influence your unconscious in the ways that you think about things. And um, that's why I think it's important to just be really critical and kind of think about the ways in which popular culture, you know, it shapes. So it is shaped and shaped by um, everyday life. And and also I'm really critical in this chapter about the ways in which from like a, I talk a lot about racial capitalism throughout the entire book, but I think it's extremely important to look at the ways in which rural class whiteness is being activated. And um, as this kind of nostalgic, um, America that um, is somehow what is quintessentially what America is. Uh, maybe I can rephrase this. Look under the rhetoric of Donald Trump, right? Uh, oh, I love the uneducated. I love the rural. You're like I, rural people or like the that rural people are somehow or working class or white trash or um what uh aaron fox calls the abject sublime within country music that you know you're trash so you embrace it right um there's some of that going on but i think that it's easy right and this is how racism often works uh it's easy to view certain particularly heinous individuals like the individuals um at charlotte during the charlottesville riot for example as racist that's white supremacy What's more challenging is looking at a liberal white person and think about the ways that liberal white people, people like me, are culpable within sustaining these processes of white supremacy. And that's where the inferential comes in. So what are the ways in which, you know, by passively listening to this music, am I contributing? What is this saying about the sonic... um, racial politics what is this saying about you know rural america what is this saying about the why why do bougie or bourgeoisie uh, middle class upper class whites romanticize being white rural working poor why why is this happening right Um, i would say it's not just a racial it's a racial and political it's a politicized racial project Um, right it's it's attempting to make um, this you know A specific voting demographic scene, but it's also a project in romanticizing an America that never happened, (laughs) you you know, Um, but using that as claiming like this is this is America. This is the cowboy aesthetic. This is America. If that makes any sense at all. You might need to cut all that, but that
1: makes perfect sense. Yeah, no, I I think that that really answers the question, helps me, and I'm sure listeners sort of un- understand uh, the argument of that chapter and sort of the the influence that music sort of has upon how we view different groups of people and how we even view our own past, right? Um, so chapter four uh, actually hits very close to home for me. I remember being much younger, living in downtown LA and seeing sort of the legalized LA campaign uh, for American Apparel all over the place. A friend of mine loved going to American Apparel, and I felt like it was just overpriced, uh, cheap white shirts. Um, but so in chapter four, you actually look at the ethical uh, consumption under racial capitalism as a type of white deflection that's invested in consumer effect. Um, and so I wonder if you could just take us through what was this legalized LA campaign uh, campaign um, what were the problems in terms of labor with it and how does this again sort of connect to to the larger work of this of this book
0: yeah so um, in this chapter I, I do talk a lot about racial capitalism and ethical consumption, this idea of um, what my advisor Maria Cotera, called exercising your politics with your pocketbook and how um, and what are the pitfalls and the the perils of of trying to do that so legalize LA. Was a T-shirt marketing campaign. You might also remember Legalized Gay, of um, uh, American Apparel, and um, American Apparel was a uh, based in L.A. Like you mentioned, owned by Dove Charney. There were all sorts of um, abuses um, of employees um, by um, that CEO. But I really, what I really focus on is the politicization, or politicization rather, of uh, his largely Latinx um, workforce around um, immigration, uh, specifically the marches that happened in 2006, um, and the ways in which this political engagement. Is used and co- co-opted, I, I argue, by a, um, a capitalist CEO to sell more T-shirts in ways that don't trickle down, right, to the actual working conditions of the factory, um, of, um, you know, the wages, like not making um, the prevailing living wage in L.A., But I'm really interested in the paradoxes of, especially for a liberal white demographic, of ethical consumption. So that's the real case study here, right? It's the ways in which with under racial capitalism, our consumption choices, um, we might use them or some people might use them to show their political ideology. Like, look, I'm progressive. Therefore, I will buy this expensive white t-shirt. But then you're implicitly saying that the individual who made that white t-shirt is not ethical in their consumption practices, right? So because they might not be able to afford that. Or why would you buy that? You made a t-shirt in 15 seconds. (laughs) Why would you pay $29 for that t-shirt? You know, Um, you don't get that much in three hours. Um, It really makes you question consumption choices, right? And how under racial capitalism, and I – I really am indebted to to black black Marxism here for for my discussion of racial capitalism, and um, and Cedric Robinson and others. And I'm kind of talk about the ways in which um, under capitalism, right? There's this bifurcation of a workforce. There's an the upper class and there's a the lower class, and most often that lower class. Um, Are they're normally black and brown individuals in the United States right so kind of I really wanted to tease and pull apart this idea of um, liberalism um, and the hypocrisy behind showing your liberalism through an act of consumption um, particularly around an issue like immigration right we can all have political ideologies around immigration but you know Buying a t shirt is not necessarily um, the same as being involved within organizing or lobbying, right? right?
1: And uh, chapter five, you sort of continue this look at sort of liberals and sort of it moves now to sort of liberal media outlets, particularly NPR, um, and how uh, these outlets sort of uh, trafficked in, as you say, exclusionary discourses. Um, So how did this exclusion take place? Can you tell us a little bit about uh, NPR and how you're actually analyzing it? Um, And just sort of take us through a little bit of that chapter and, and your argument there.
0: That's a great question. Like, so I have to say that, you know, it's important not, and I think in a lot of ways, not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, to use a metaphor that Maria Elena used when I was in school with her at Williams. But um, when it comes to NPR, I'm looking specifically at the Postville immigration raid. The Postville immigration raid um, was the largest immigration raid in U.S. history. This immigration raid... Um, the, I could go on about the immigration rate if you're interested, but um, there were individuals were apprehended and put in the National Cattle Congress in Postville, Iowa. Um, under Bush administration, um, they had, I believe, five years in prison. Um, they, they, many people claimed you know, um, guilt for stealing fraudulent IDs. This couldn't happen today because of another case that happened, but since then, but um, what I'm really interested in is in the breadth of this coverage. So their coverage of Postville goes back many years because Postville um, at one point had, you know, one of the largest populations of rabbis outside of New York in the United States because of this large kosher meat packing plant agroprocessors where these individuals worked. Um, so NPR had been covering this this company for a very long time and Postville for a very long time. So there was like a breadth of... Um, information that I was able to kind of look at and think about Postville as the changing demographics of America, right? It wasn't just Latinx migration. It was Jewish migration. It was, you know, more expansive. And so I was interested in framing mechanisms throughout this coverage, the implicit ways that, you know, we might constantly be reminded that of an individual's culpability, for example. So let me, um, one of the things that I noticed throughout the entire coverage is that by the end of a story, we were always reminded that individuals, you know, stole social security numbers. And I use like scare quotes in this that you can't see because um, it's, it's often more um, complicated than that. Um, you know, individuals might be working under a social security number that they um, made up that was given to them. And um, just because you're working under a number and and doesn't necessarily mean that you understand or maybe you do that it was it was taken. So from an, from a citizen um, of the US. So. I was really interested in the ways in which there's certain discursive shifts throughout the coverage. So that culpability is always kind of leveraged on these undocumented individuals. And, you know, there are certain instances of torture, there are certain instances of um, really heinous working conditions that are overlooked. There was something called uh, there was uh, labor organizing for example going on in agroprocessors um before the raid and there's in the, and ICE was told about this. This isn't covered in NPR's coverage. So I kind of felt like the bigger story here, right, was the use of labor recruitment. The bigger story was exploitation of workers. The bigger story is how are these individuals treated? The bigger story is, you know, the growth of the private prison industry in relationship to immigration. That this was mostly used as like a, um, almost like a shock and awe. Like this is what's happening. Look at these individuals um, versus look at this system. This is not, you know, yes, it was the largest immigration rate in U.S. history, but the systems that are working behind them, right, the growth of the private prison industry is one of the biggest lobbying industries in Washington, largely on the immigration, right? Um, the uh, treatment of individuals, some of which many uh, of the individuals who worked in Postville were Guatemalan Mayan and um, didn't speak um. Spanish or needed a a translator, right? The ways in which multiple people were um, on trial, like contemporaneously, there were a lot of things going on within this coverage where we're kind of focusing on um, individual stories or um, spaces left vacant, right? We don't follow the narrative of the workers. We follow the narrative of the Midwestern town left vacant. We follow the narrative of other workers who come in. So subsequent coverage of NPR also looks at who comes in to fill these jobs. Um, They include everyone from um, convicts from Texas to then uh, workers from the Pacific, the the um, UN-occupied territory of Palau. Um, So I'm rambling a bit, but what I think is really important, what I was trying to get at in that, Chapter is even a purportedly liberal outlet. And this is something that I do in the chapter is I study how does MP- NPR define itself? Who are NPR's listening publics, right? National public radio, who are the publics? Is it the national public? Is it everyone in the national publics? Um, it's. Predominantly college-educated white people, though not exclusively. No, not exclusively, but predominantly, based on various reports that they gave themselves on their listening publics, is predominantly, you know, college-educated um, white people, middle class, and the ways in which you kind of see this repeated coverage, um, putting culpability on immigrants in the story right on uh not following up like the the big story that i feel is there which is one of you know global capitalism which is one of labor exploitation which is one of you know um human rights uh, prison industrial complex those are the big stories that you're not looking at it's almost easier to focus on oh look this is a large immigration raid you know, have fear. You know, people are going to steal your things, and this is this is the fear mongering rhetoric. But what's really happening, right? We're growing the prison industrial complex in this nation. Um, we're increasing um, individuals incarcerated who are nonviolent offenders. You know, um, I mean, throughout this time period, Pew Hispanic said that Latinx um, incarceration at the federal level which would be for immigration crimes, increased something between like, I think it was like 88%, something like that. Um, and it was because of immigration. That's the story, in my opinion. <laughs> but we always, but I think it's easy to kind of focus on um, the shock and awe. It was Bush administration, so shock and awe of like this raid. Absolutely. Um, that makes sense, so, I rambled, makes sense.
1: No, no no, no, by all means, and so, in the epilogue, also, you use a number of examples I love to illustrate sort of performative white allyship. Uh, can you explain to us what performative white allyship is and sort of also what the what is the future of critical whiteness studies as you see it
0: yeah, so um <sighs> I wanted to end my book in kind of a non-traditional-ish way, which was through thinking about performative allyship, because I think that what it means to be an accomplice is really important. And what – so one of the things that I talked about was I talked about a CEO of a major multinational bank um, kneeling, right, as an Instagram post to kind of show solidarity with the Black Lives Matter social movement – Um, and I mean, we can see performative allyship a lot in social media and a lot of individuals have, have studied this, but really what I'm interested in is thinking about what does it mean for a white person to challenge white supremacist systems? What does it mean as a white person to, to be more than just a performative ally and so I really um, looked at a variety of different sources here in the conclusion, um, and, and here I just kind of I um, quote Leandra Hernandez in the conclusion, um, and they term it uh, white performative allyship, right? And they say it involves anti-racist pronouncements that do not address the systemic and institutionalized racism nature of racism. And this is something that I'm getting try to show throughout my book. I'm talking about rhetoric. I'm talking about rhetoric that looks at racism. And this is often how many white people, the folk understanding of racism that they have, that racism is an individual fault or a failing of an individ- of you know particularly heinous people. The you know maybe the rural, the southern, whatever. But I'm trying to say that actually, racism is incredibly ordinary. And racism is all around us. It's embedded within the structures of our institutions. It's embedded within our economy. It's embedded within our school systems. It's embedded within um, you know, our housing markets, uh, our lending practices. Historically, and still, and it's still, Um, so I think it's important to situate my conclusion within thinking about performative allyship, because I think that this is what the future of critical race uh, critical whiteness studies really is. I think it's in focusing on what does it mean to truly be an accomplice, to truly truly be what Nolan Gov called a race trader and others, right? What does it mean to be a race trader today? What does it mean to um, not to disrupt systems of white supremacy and to understand the structural impacts, right? And to understand that this is um, for humanity's betterment, which I think that it's an important note to end on, because to end on social activism today, that, you know, might make an affective gesture that might make you feel good, that look unprogressive, you know, but it's more than wearing a t shirt. It's more than taking a knee. What is your corporation doing to truly address unfair lending practices that you've historically been involved with? Um, So, yeah,
1: absolutely. And uh, what sort of audience did you imagine for this work while you were writing that?
0: When I was writing, it, I was thinking um, individuals who study um, media studies. I think that, you know, I was thinking about the intersection between media studies and critical race studies, um, as well as um, American studies, African-American studies, Latinx studies, um, and sociology, because I do do a lot of work within the sociology of race and racism.
1: And what do you want readers to take away from your book?
0: I want to, if they could, if individuals could take one thing away from my book, it would be the ways in which racism is embedded into the structures of our institutions, and through everyday unconscious ways, we support and embolden those structures. When I'm saying we as white people, and not when we don't question them. Um, That sometimes, you know, it takes an introspective look. And often that happens through sitting with the work of um, scholars of color, um, black Marxists, and kind of to understand these structures. And I think that that's one of the things that I'm trying to to get across for liberal whites within my book, because, I mean, I I don't think that, you know, a conservative is going to pick up my book with the thought of wanting to, um, I mean, maybe this shouldn't be in the podcast, but it's not, I'm not, I'm not an idiot. I don't think that, um, you know, someone like Charlie Kirk is going to pick up my book and use it as anything other than a talking point for his agenda, right? But I'm hoping that someone who is maybe um, a liberal white might sit and think, wow, there are all of these different ways that white supremacy can operate, that is strategic, deliberate, but I don't always realize it and maybe I can change that. Maybe I can think about how do I become a better ally. Maybe I wanna pick up um, some Charles Mills (laughs) and sit with that. Yeah.
1: Well, Dr. Haynes, we've taken up a lot of your time. So I'll ask one final question. What are you working on now?
0: Yes. Thank you so much for that question. So my second book project, tentatively titled White Women in the Rhetoric of Supremacy, studies the intersections of white women's rhetoric, white supremacy, and hegemonic masculinity in mediated cultures. It looks at white women or the myth of white womanhood and how they're the mortaring keystone of everyday white supremacist rhetoric dating back to myths of white slavery and embedded in films like birth of a nation. My research in my forthcoming book um, will suggest that white women recycle rhetoric, um, relying on hegemonic tropes of femininity and masculinity and upholding the racial status quo, um, committing what Michelle Holling terms, uh, rhetorical violence and minoritized populations. So, and then I look at the ways in which this rhetoric by white women influences legislation regarding everything from Roe v. Wade, um, bathroom bills, um, and and more so i'm really interested in taking what i talked about in that second chapter um around women in uh white supremacist rhetoric and making that um a monograph so that's what i'm doing wow that's
1: amazing i will definitely look out for it i'm sure others will as well um and it sounds like a wonderful project um well Dr. Hannah Noel Haynes, I, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. And take care.
0: Thank you, Omari.